Welcome to Bible Fiber. I am Shelley Neese, president of the Jerusalem Connection, a Christian organization devoted to sharing the story of the people of Israel, both ancient and modern. One thing that makes reading the Hebrew scriptures difficult is that while the Bible is telling the story of one people, the Israelites, other ancient people groups enter and exit the scene. The Israelites did not live in a bubble, and they still do not. They were constantly interacting with their neighbors and subjugated by the rotating door of ancient empires. In our effort to be more informed Bible readers, we are doing a mini-series on the peoples of the Bible. Today's history lesson is on the Hittites. Although the Hittites were one of the great civilizations of the ancient Near East, most Bible readers are only familiar with the term Hittite from the famous story of David and Bathsheba. The book of 2 Samuel records that Bathsheba, the bathing woman that David seduced, was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. When Bathsheba became pregnant, David failed in his effort to cover it up because Uriah was a loyal soldier who refused to sleep with his wife when his comrades were at war. Instead of dealing with the consequences of his sin, David had Uriah killed in battle. In David's confrontation with the prophet Nathan, Nathan compared David to a rich man who slaughtered the beloved sheep of a poor man, Uriah. The whole biblical episode is surprising and disturbing. First, the Bible presented the Hittite as the good guy in the story and the most beloved Israelite king as the bad guy. Second, it seems worth knowing why a Hittite was fighting in Israel's army. To answer those questions, we must go back to the Bronze Age. From 1700 to 1200 BCE, the Hittites were Israel's neighbor to the north. Although scholars debate their place of origin, their language suggests they have Indo-European roots. Most likely, they were part of a large migration from the west and the Middle Bronze Age. They settled Anatolia or Asia Minor, which is equivalent to today's modern Turkey. One of the earliest Hittite kings stationed their capital at Hattusa, where it remained for over three centuries. A mountainous region in Anatolia's central highlands, Hattusa had the great advantage of natural barriers, like deep gorges and ridges, making it easier to defend against potential invaders. But the Hittites still did not take any chances, and they also heavily fortified Hattusa with massive walls and multiple gates. From their strategic perch, the Hittites controlled key trade routes and maintained their influence over neighboring regions. During the peak of the Hittite Empire, they extended Hittite influence into various regions, including parts of northern Syria and upper Mesopotamia. Because the Hittite Empire and ancient Israel shared common borders, they had various interactions. Something to keep in mind while you're reading your Bible is that the biblical authors broadly used the term Hittite to refer to people who lived in the region even after the historical Hittite empire no longer existed. In the years after the empire's decline, smaller Hittite city-states formed with their own local regions. Modern historians call them Neo-Hittite or Hittite-Luwian states. The Israelites' interaction with Hittites mostly occurred after the Hittite empire fell, but the biblical authors kept referring to the people from the region as Hittites. They were not as concerned as modern scholars with clear-cut ethnographic classifications. 
A modern day equivalent is that people might still refer to the Czech Republic as Czechoslovakia, forgetting that the name is no longer correct after 1993. Even prior to the fall of the Hittite Empire at the end of the Late Bronze Age, the Hittites abandoned Hattusa for reasons not fully understood. Over the centuries, the capital was buried and forgotten. In 1906, a German archaeologist named Hugo Winkler brought a team to excavate Hattusa on the suspicion that it was the long-lost Hittite capital. Indeed, they discovered temples, administrative buildings, a palace complex, gates, and fortifications. And the excavations yielded 30,000 cuneiform tablets and fragments. The largest volume of tablets was found in the royal archives, but they found other tablets all over the site. Most of the cuneiform tablets were inscribed in the Hittite language, but the collection also showed that many other languages were present in the Hittite Empire, like Akkadian. Once translated, these tablets shed light on Hittite religion, economy, legislation, administration, politics, and daily life. The tablets gave historians a full picture of the Hittite system of government, which was like a constitutional monarchy. The legal code tablets also revealed a society with an elaborate judicial system. As far as religious texts, the Hittite pantheon was an adopted and adapted version of the Hurrian, Anatolian, Syrian, and Mesopotamian deities. Hurrian culture and religion had a big impact on the Hittites. Tarhunt was the head of the pantheon, a version of the Hurrian storm god Tesu. Hebat, a sun goddess, was his wife, and Shuruma was their son. The Hittites were military expansionists, but also pragmatic diplomats. They found treaties all over the ancient Near Eastern capitals that reflected the significant efforts the Hittites made to establish working peace with their neighbors. What really threw everyone for a loop was the discovery that the biblical covenants followed the same structure as the treaties between the Hittite kings and their vassal nations. The Hittite treaties usually followed a specific structure. They began with a preamble identifying the parties, their historical relationship, and their power balance. Next, they outlined the stipulations of the relationship, what the king expected from the vassal. A ritual or meal sealed the terms of the treaties, and then they would deposit the treaties in a place of note. It would end with a list of blessings and curses. Biblical scholars immediately saw parallels with these Hittite treaties and the biblical covenants made with Noah and Abraham, and especially with the covenant made at Mount Sinai with all of Israel. The first Hittite king, Hattusuli I, consolidated the Hittite state and moved the capital to Hattusa. After him, Marsili I launched military campaigns against neighboring regions, including a successful raid on Babylon. Marsili II dared to take the empire's expansion project down into Syria, which threatened the Egyptians. At the famous Battle of Kadesh, the Hittite army confronted Pharaoh Ramses II and the Egyptian army. The battle is the first one in history that has a recorded version of events from both sides and their preserved temple inscriptions. Over several decades, the Hittites struggled with the line of succession. Instability within the royal family followed. All the while, the Hittites stayed in regular conflict with the Assyrians and Egyptians, vying for power and skirmishing over borders in the region. 
1259 BCE, years after the battle at Kadesh, the Egyptians under Ramses II and Hittites under Hattusa III made a treaty to end their long run of hostility. The empire collapsed around 1180 BCE, along with most every other kingdom in the Late Bronze Age, as a combined result of drought, famine, earthquakes, and the Sea Peoples. Hattusa was burned to the ground. Among the Hittite tablets were two apology letters written by Hittite kings to subordinate rulers that tell us more about the empire's situation in its last months. In the letters, vassals of the Hittite empire complained about their lack of food and provisions. The Hittite kings apologized and blamed it on the famine and drought in the region. The first mention of Hittites in the Bible is in the Table of Nations, which listed Hittites among the descendants of Noah. Later, when God made a covenant with Abraham, promising him land from the Nile to the Euphrates, he named the Hittites as one people occupying the promised land. Abraham even negotiated with the Hittite and purchasing a burial plot for his wife, Sarah. In God's promise to Moses at the burning bush, he listed the Hittites as one of the pre-Israelite occupants of the land. Scholars debate whether there was a presence of historical Hittites living in the land of Palestine in the second millennium BCE. The biblical authors were most likely using the term Hittite for any people groups that originated from the area of Anatolia. But during the period of the conquest, Canaan was inhabited by an array of small nations. The Hittites or Neo-Hittites certainly could have been one of them. Either way, the Hittites are not one of Israel's number one enemies in the Bible, like the Amalekites or the Philistines. In fact, the Bible presents Hittites positively for their talents and contributions. In the Book of Kings, the Hittites supplied Israel with cedar and horses and chariots. And as I mentioned at the start, Uriah the Hittite was a loyal soldier in David's army. King David's army was composed of warriors or mercenaries from different ethnic backgrounds. Uriah's loyalty towards his fellow soldiers suggests he fought not as a mercenary, but as a part of a more strategic Hittite-Israelite alliance. The fact Uriah had a house near the king's palace meant he had an established and trusted station in Jerusalem. The most monumental Hittite connection to the Bible, however, was the discovery of the Hittite-Suzerain-Vassal Treaties. Until their translation, only a little over a century ago, no one knew that the biblical covenants were modeling a type of legal and diplomatic covenant between kings and subjugate rulers. But the structural similarities between the biblical covenants and the Hittite covenants are uncanny. God even mirrored the Hittite ritual elements of establishing a covenant. Moses, per God's request, deposited the tablets inside the Ark of the Covenant for safekeeping. The Hittites placed their treaties inside temples or other sacred areas, because in ancient times there was no separation of religion and politics. When Joshua gathered the Israelites together for a ceremony reciting the blessings and curses of the covenant, he was speaking to the Israelites in a manner they recognized. Hittite treaties also included sections that outlined the consequences of breaking or keeping the covenant. The vassal was expected to be loyal and fulfill certain duties in relation to the king. If the vassal was disobedient or disloyal, they could expect punishment, while obedience garnered provision. 
Despite the similarities in language and format, the theological implications of biblical covenants are much more important than the details of covenants between the Hittite kings and their subordinates. The biblical covenant highlights moral and ethical responsibilities, and the initiator of the covenant is the creator of the universe, not a power-seeking earthly king. Still, this is a notable example of how studying the history of the ancient Near East illuminates the Bible and puts its narrative in context. The biblical authors employed familiar cultural and legal conventions to express theological concepts about God and the divine human relationship. Thank you for listening, and please continue to take part in this mini-course on Peoples of the Bible. Next week, we're learning about the Edomites, the fraternal enemies of the chosen people. That will be the last episode in our Peoples of the Bible series before we move on to Ezekiel. For the show transcript, go to our blog or sign up for our emails at thejerusalemconnection.us. Send me a message. I'll respond. Bible Fiber is available on YouTube or wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm Israel High. Thank you.